0: Things change and time passes, you need to be flexible and adapt or you will die. Tower did not adapt.
1: Welcome to episode 10 of The Great Fail, a podcast that examines the greatest success stories and their spectacular fails, what led to the demise of the most prolific people, brands, and companies. I am your host, Deborah Chen, and this week we'll be looking at Tower Records. Music is an ever-evolving art form that has defined cultures for generations. Anthropologists and sociologists They found that it oftentimes has the ability to forge even deeper connections between people than languages. It's a profound experience that may explain why there's such a visceral reaction when you come across songs and melodies that move you. And perhaps that's why the now defunct Tower Records seemed to evoke such a deep sense of nostalgia for so many. For over four decades, this institution of a record store represented an era where the culture and abstraction of music were encapsulated into a tangible space. From vinyl, to cassette tape, to CDs. Though it may be hard to imagine now, this was a time when the record store was the beating heart of the musical world. But Tower was so much more than just a store. It was a movement and it radiated coolness. The stores were ran by misfits and the renegade persona trickled down from the top from their beloved and worshiped founder, Russ Solomon, who was revered in the music industry, all the way down to the clerks working behind the counter who basically wore whatever they pleased, answered to no one, partied hard, and were oftentimes aspiring artists themselves. These guys and gals lived and breathed music, and it could be felt in every part of the Tower chain. This type of store culture was what made Tower so successful for so many years, and at its peak, the music empire was earning a billion dollars a year with over 200 stores in 21 states and 15 countries. For decades, it seemed like the sun would never set, on the iconic yellow and red letters that illuminated so many urban cityscapes. But that light, so bright and vibrant, would soon burn out. Welcome to the story of Tower Records. Birth behind a pharmacy in Sacramento, California in 1940, tone-deaf and ungratefully dead, by 2006. There was a time when people would walk into a record store and spend hours looking through albums without any real motivation other than discovering new music as a pastime. Growing up in New York, I would take the subway from Queens to the Tower Records on 4th and Broadway in Manhattan, and it was a destination spot for me and so many others. I would literally spend hours upon hours sifting through new music, artists, albums I'd never heard of. And as a teenager with limited funds, I remember what it felt like taking a gamble on a new album, either based on the look of a cover or speaking to a clerk that sold me on something new or a must have classic. It was an experience. But one of my fondest memories of Tower Records actually came from my dad. Being an immigrant from Taiwan, he's always had a love for American music. And I credit him for putting me on to the greatest musicians of his time. Steely Dan, Santana, The Eagles, Chicago. I knew he had been obsessing about a Kenny Loggins song called Decisions. But for some reason, he couldn't find the album, and he had been asking around, but no one seemed to know of the song, and this kept going on for several months, until one day he decided to stop by a tower. He spoke to a clerk, and obviously there was a clear disconnect at first, probably due to my father's thick Chinese accent. And it seemed like the conversation wasn't going anywhere. My dad persisted a final time and gave his best attempt at the song, humming the tune, Peppering the only word he knew that belonged in the song, decisions, he would drop in between the tune hoping to evoke some sort of response. And then suddenly, according to my dad's retelling of the story, the clerk's face lit up like a light bulb. And he kindly, sheepishly explained to my dad that Kenny Loggins wasn't saying the word decisions, he was actually saying the word, this is it, which happened to be the song title. He finally helped my dad find the album that he's been searching for for months. There was something endearing about this exchange that made me always love going to the shop. And that's what Russ Solomon, the founder and the man behind Tower Records, took so much pride in. In fact, the Tower website for their Sunset Boulevard store actually said, quote... Not sure who sings the song by the guy who sang that other song? Our friendly, knowledgeable staff is always ready to help. End quote. It was brilliant. And so was their fearless leader. Russ was, after all, the visionary behind the brands. And how he turned a small little record shop into an international behemoth? Well, that was a pretty unique story. When he was just 14 years old, Russ started selling records from the back of his father's drugstore in the Tower Theater building in Sacramento in 1940. I guess you could say retail was in his blood. Russ would spend all day working alongside his father, sweeping the floor, putting stuff away. And when his dad installed a soda fountain, Russ was working the machine as well, learning how to make milkshakes, ice cream sodas, but more importantly, learning how to interact with his customers and how to sell. It would be 20 years later after serving in the Air Force in World War II, when Russ would come back to continue the dream of opening up his own first music store paying an homage to his father's pharmacy by naming it Tower Records. From Russ's humble roots to the back of his father's door, this new venture would later turn into an empire. In 1961, Russ opened up the first official Tower record store on Sacramento's Watt Avenue, complete with its distinct design letter insignia, courtesy of his buddy Charles, who used the capital letters from a font literally called Tower and combined it with the colors of Shell Oil Company because it was one of the most visible colors you could see from a distance. It certainly worked. With its signature-wide aisles stocked with LPs and CDs, which became the staple of the other Tower record franchises, Tower would become the mecca for music fans swarming by the hordes, creating a generation that lived by their diehard slogan, No music, no life. It was the coolest place in the world. By 1968 and 1970, a new string of stores emerged in locations in San Francisco and Los Angeles. In 1979, they opened Tower Japan, which became one of their first international expansion efforts. Many would say that the 70s to the 90s made for the perfect storm of events that allowed Tower and many other music retailers to thrive. It was a time when the act of acquiring physical music was so personal. When you would hear a song on the radio or see a local band at a dive bar and you would crave to hear it again and want more and you would have to head into a store to actually physically buy it. As music transitioned from LPs to CDs, Tower dominated the music retailing industry, reigning above all others. With its diverse collections, clerks that served as tastemakers, and their community of outsiders atmosphere, Tower wasn't only revered by fans, but they were revered by musicians themselves. Bruce Springsteen would frequent the stores. Elton John would go into one every week to buy stacks of new releases. Pavarotti performed at the stores in San Francisco and would stick around to sign autographs for hours, as with many other artists. The list of bands that played from the shop ranged from Duran Duran to Mariah Carey, with legends like Axl Rose who even worked there as a night manager in the 80s. The inside of the store was filled with good vibes and bohemian culture. And outside the storefronts, you were met with an amassment of hand-painted billboards touting the latest new releases. But the character traits that worked so successfully was perhaps Russ's unique approach to management, which was called the Tom Sawyer method, where everything they did was based on ideas from the people at the stores. Darren Phyllis, an operations manager who was an executive overseeing the growth of the company in Latin America, talks about his recollection of Russ's management style.
0: Culture was that, you know, these are the people that are in the field, listen to them, and they have ideas. And that came straight from like, you know, after a while, I mean, I got to meet Russ, the founder of Tower, and that was his, his thing. He always called them the kids, you know, listen to the kids. They're the ones that are talking to the to the customers, and it just bred a culture of, I guess, a certain amount of freedom and responsibility, and There's accountability, because you're also looking at your sales, you know, and your inventory bodies. So it's a really cool place to work. It's just a lot of fun, and obviously you're in a place with music is playing all day. And people are coming to do something that they love, you know, and spend time and talk to you, very social environment, which is cool. Just a really cool thing, even in the book section. You know, people go and they talk about the books, the new releases and the the bestsellers, the magazines. And it's just just a really cool, hip, fun place to be.
1: Subsequently, most of the decisions during these expansion years seem to have a fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants approach, invoking a sense of fearlessness and invincibility. But despite the company's massive success, a storm was building on the horizon, one that would shake the entire music industry to its core. The late 90s brought with it the digital wave. Digital downloads and streaming music started to erupt in popularity and began to supplant the physical act of buying albums. And though there were strong doubts that digital could ever replace physical inventory, times were changing. The writing was on the wall and it was hard to ignore. In 1994, there was a promo video. Russ was quoted saying, As for the whole concept of beaming something into one's home, that may come along someday, that's for sure. But it will come along over a long period of time and we'll be able to deal with it and change our focus and change the way we do business. As far as your CD collection and our CD inventory, for that matter, it's gonna be around for a long, long time, believe me. That interview, so calm and confident, made it clear how Tower never saw what was coming. Because just three years later in 1997, Capitol Records made history when it became the first major label to digitally distribute and sell Duran Duran's single, Electric Barbarella, as the internet's first ever digital asset. Selling for 99 cents, it completely disrupted the music industry and signaled the arrival of legitimate digital distribution. This rattled the hierarchy of the retail food chain and pissed off record stores. It seemed that no matter the loyalty of the customer, everything changed when they found out that you could be in your PJs downloading music for a fraction of the price. The effects were earth shattering. It was a transitional time and the entire industry saw sales drop down by half of the 14.6 billion within that decade this dramatic decline in revenue caused large-scale layoffs and led to consolidation as well as many venerable retailers vying to stay on top. It also didn't help that big-box retailers like Target and Best Buy, Circuit City and Walmart, they all had their own agenda to drive in more consumers to their stores and they were heavily discounting their own music inventory. But it would be what occurred in 1998 that would be towers ultimate misstep. With so many competitors and large retail chains like Sam Goody, HMV, Virgin, and many more, all trying to become the reigning force within the music industry, what did Tower do? Well, they decided to double down. Rather than reshift its focus and perhaps recalibrate its business strategy, it decided instead to go big, go aggressive, and continue going international. Russ took on $100 million of debt and used those funds to drive their footprint internationally. Perhaps it was the same easygoing confidence that had once made Tower so invincible, but as the overall industry was starting to die down, the decisions that the executives on top made were starting to sound as off-pitch as a busted guitar. Mm Things really began to unravel when Tower kept expanding
0: I remember opening these stores um, it was like the first, my first projects the first one I did was in Argentina in Buenos Aires I went down and they opened a store and these are big stores so that was like the international expansion that I got to witness a little bit um, I remember doing a store in Toronto in a mall which is a very different type of format than from what I believe they were custom of doing. I believe most of their stores were standalone. Mall rent is very different than doing it standalone. Um, they did another store in Argentina, which was huge. I think it was six stories. It was huge. In Buenos Aires, another one. And those stores just didn't work, you know? So they spent millions and millions and millions of dollars into these international expansions. The Mexico business wasn't working either, you know? They were joint venture partners, but it but also it wasn't bringing in any cash flow for them at all. So they, you know, this international expansion really didn't, outside of Japan, wasn't really working for them. They had a franchise model, so they were in other parts of in Asia and uh, Latin America. But it just wasn't, it just didn't work the same for some reason. And I don't know why, I can't speak to, to why it wasn't working the same. Maybe it was the price and, you know, for the different in case of Mexico. And I can, I can speak to that. I mean, Mexico, there is a competitor called MixUp. And MixUp had 40 stores and Tower had four stores. Um, and it's a business with relatively thin margins and it's about volume. So if you don't have, you know, the locations, you're not gonna thrive. On a store by store basis, the tower stores did very, very well. When you look at how they, you know, prepared up to the mix up stores. But we were doing very good business, hand in hand with our top stores. We just didn't have enough. And also part of this thing was in, in my particular, a lot of things that I learned through this process is that we were doing things very rudimentary and very like manually. And we weren't leveraging the technology that power was using in the US, so we were doing things very inefficiently, making mistakes with purchasing and, you know, not managing inventory properly, and even the financial statements were kind of hokey, just because we weren't leveraging the tech. And that was something that, I mean, I don't know why that wasn't implemented properly from the get-go.
1: The pain seemed almost inevitable because the strategy abroad wasn't really much of a strategy. Russ's dependence on debt to fuel Tower's expansion created a burden on the company's finances by the early 2000s. As a result, Tower lost $10 million in the year 2000 and $90 million in the year 2001.
0: And then at the same time, along comes Napster. Yeah, and that's a major blow. Um, I think that's amazing I mean, when I was in the offices in West Sacramento that was a major thing that you would hear everybody talk about is that you can get your music for free you can put it on this little device but you can just put your music on there and you can just take it with you whatever you want whatever song you want and it changed that was for me that was the tipping point of changing music forever
1: 2004 was the first time Tower filed for Chapter 11, citing heavy debt from the aggressive expansion in the 90s, growing competition for mass discounters, and internet piracy. During this time, the debt was estimated to be about $100 million, and the SEC revealed that it had lost money for 13 consecutive quarters. The company went into full cost-cutting mode, hired a new CEO, hired a crisis management and bankruptcy specialist to help clean the company's heavy debt and image. But it wasn't enough. On August 20th, 2006, the company for the second and final time announced that it would be shutting down its doors forever. What once were billboards of album releases were now replaced with going out of business signs. Tower would close 89 stores in 20 states and let go of 3,000 employees. Some have speculated that Russ's too-big-to-fail mentality got in the way of adapting to the changing time. And that from up top, their aloofness was what ultimately killed the brand and made it obsolete. But the lack of structure and loose management style, well, that was what made it unstoppable for 40 years. Did the ultimate ending to Russ's poetic vision lay in his failure to adapt and evolve with the paradigm shift in music and technology? Those same anthropologists that speak to the power of music would also tell you that adaptability is essential for survival. Take for instance, Tower Records Japan, I talk about this because I visited the store in Tokyo just a couple of months ago and felt like I was in a time warp as I walked in. It was still so alive. In fact, there was a huge line of fans waiting to meet a boy band group, the same essence that had kept Tower USA so alive in its heyday. During the turbulent times in the early 2000s, the local management of Tower Japan decided to seize an opportunity to buy out its division and split from the U.S. parent company. This allowed for the Japanese store to chart their own course, and they did, by investing in the redevelopment of the store to become the largest tower in the world and also create content through its free magazines. Tower Japan was the first to team up with local record companies and artists to develop innovative ways of grouping categories. They were also the first in the world to team up with artists to bundle concert tickets and backstage passes with music sales, as they combined CD purchases with club memberships, stickers, cards, posters and other incentives. They actively promoted in-store concerts, signings, and conversations with local acts and labels. And while Tower U.S. carried on as if Napster would miraculously disappear, their Japanese counterpart invested and became a majority owner of Napster Japan. As the saying goes, if you can't beat them, join them.
0: When you're going to get into new markets, there's there's a couple of things. The international expansion drained them of cash, right? So they were... I think there was some arrogance about we're tower records. We can do, look at how strong we are here. We can do whatever we want. And you come into these markets and it doesn't work. And they think, well, we're tower, eventually it'll come around and it doesn't come around. You know, like we're a big muscle. We're gonna muscle our way through here with the labels. It doesn't matter. They're just not generating enough sales to cover your overhead. You know, not not understanding the economy that you're going into. Or if you're gonna go into a market to have a more structured plan. From my recollection with like how it was done in Mexico, um, also because you know, way that I, it's my brother and I got to witness it before I was involved. It wasn't a very formal, like business plan. I mean, there's a, clearly a business model, but like, okay, we're gonna hit these milestones, we're gonna expand, we're gonna do this. In, for, in order for this to work, we've got to have this many units to sell. Like the break-even analysis. Like all of this, what I would consider basic business practices. Right now, it was a very emotional, passionate decision and they're very passionate business and that business was then very passionately in mexico i mean it was about the love of the music and the culture but i think it was lacking some business structure of how to run the business properly and another thing too is i think is to not be stuck on your model and to understand that your business plan and your business model is alive and as things change and time passes you need to be flexible and adapt or you will die. Tower did not adapt. They tried to do, you know, they, they had some late success with a DVD and Blu-ray, but that was it. Once the streaming came out, they didn't, they, was, they tried to sell hardware, but the margins were just too thin, you know? And they only had like, I think eight feet in their store of hardware. It just wasn't enough. And there's I mean, no margin. You're not selling nearly enough to even make a remote impact. Their business was selling physical media, and they didn't doubt. They kept too many stores open. It just didn't work out.
1: The downfall of Tower was ultimately a product of rapidly changing times and a company that failed to see the writing on the wall. It bears noting, though, that Tower was not an outlier in this. Record stores are practically an endangered species now and Tower just had the dubious role of being the first and biggest domino to fall. This was a phenomenal case study, a classic example of how a beloved brand after achieving so much success could stumble into the mistakes that you'd see in a business 101 class. Overexpansion, lack of capital, lack of structured management, underestimating competition, and the failure to adapt with changing times. I think sometimes we have a tendency to assume that the business world is this insanely complex monolith, but cases like Tower show us that ways companies crumble are often remarkably simple. There are so many more companies that will continue to be disrupted by technology and changing consumer behaviors. And when corporate anthropologists look back at even this very moment, what will they write about now? Look at the current roster of iconic companies or what continues to happen to brick and mortar stores. How many of them seem subject to what Tower Records went through? Consumer behaviors continue to evolve. Innovation is occurring every day. And when disruption happens, when you least expect it, what companies will evolve and what companies will dissolve? And what side of the fence will you be on if you are running a company today? What made towers so special—the creativity, the glamour, their beatnik roar that thrived for decades— were rendered useless against the emerging behemoth of digital music. Ironically, what made them thrive—the chaotic creativity that was once necessary to survive— never transitioned into a structured form of management. As the music industry and all of the progressive players forged ahead, Russ, the antithesis of corporate, was known to collect neckties from music industry executives that he would scissor, was the one being cut this time. After Tower's fate was decided in 2006, Russ sent an email to his employees in what would be the last and final official letter for his staff. In it, he said, The fat lady has sung. She was off-key. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Special thanks to Darren Phyllis for his contributions to this episode and for sharing his story on the iconic Tower Records. And thank you for tuning in on this week's The Great Fail, a program that spotlights some of the most infamous case studies of failed businesses, brands, and ideas, and goes beyond that to garner lessons of wisdom so that we can all learn from the greatest mistakes. The research on each episode is extensive, but none of these episodes would be possible without the tireless efforts of researchers, writers, and reporters. They are all credited on thegreatfail.com under our show notes. Connect with us at The Great Fail Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, and review so that we can continue bringing you more episodes. And remember, with great failure comes great liability.